This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This is Design School. On this episode of This is Design School, we interviewed the talented and amazing Michael Beirut. Michael is known for his work on such projects as the Hillary Campaign, the New York Times, and MasterCard. We had a chance to sit down with him while he was in town and chat about the real early years and what it takes to work with the powerhouse of Pentagram. Michael Beirut, thank you so much for being on This is Design School with us today. Thank you very much. I uh, greatly appreciate it, and it's amazing to sit across the way from someone that I actually mimic in my class. I often show the Helvetica documentary, Uh and my favorite is your stop Coke, stop, and I often do that to students' projects. So. Little did I know that that would become um, my version of I'm having what she's having. <laughs> I thought maybe what we could do is start off by talking a bit about uh, your design education. I know a bit of your background and how you discovered design at an early age, but maybe if you'd love to share a story of how you got to be Michael Beirut. I was always Michael Beirut, but I got to be a graphic designer in what in its time was an unusual way. I'm, I'm old. I was born in 1957, so I grew up in the 60s and was in high school in the 70s. And this is pre-internet, pre a lot of things. And among other things it was pre, was pre-common knowledge that there was such a thing called graphic design. I think there was some vague idea. There was something called art and there was some version of art called commercial art. I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio and didn't know anyone who was doing any kind of art, commercial, fine or otherwise. And um, no one I knew knew anyone who was doing anything like that. Yet I was good at art. I liked to draw. I was good at doing realistic drawing, which was impressive to people. It's not the only, you know, not the only kind of art that counts for sure. And I think it actually is overrated in terms of, uh, you know, it's all about craft and not that much about creativity. But I was good at it. And um, it so happened that as I got increasingly interested in art at the junior high school and high school level, I also started getting recruited to doing things like posters for the play and banners for the football team and t-shirts for the band and things like that. And boy, did I love doing that. Mm-hmm. It was much better than just doing a single drawing or painting and have that hang up in the hallway outside the art rooms, you know, to sort of have something that was mass produced to see people wearing a t-shirt, something you had designed, or to walk down the hall and see a reproduction of a poster you had done for the play over and over again. I just thought that was thrilling, but I had no idea by what mechanism that could be a career. I happened to find this uh, funny, lonesome little book in our high school library uh, called Your Future in Graphic Design Slash Art. And it was by a, a guy whose name was unfamiliar to me named uh, Neil Fujita. Or he, uh, and it turns out that he actually was a fairly well-known New York art director who did, among other things, the, uh, the cover of the book The Godfather, which is, became the 
the movie oh, logo, sure, yeah, 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 with the hand holding, mm-hmm. you know. So anytime, and so he did that. Although I think most people wouldn't know his name. This book was electrifying to me because it was filled with examples of people who were doing this thing that I thought had no name, that I thought was just this weird hobby that I might have you know, while I'd have to go get a real job. And so I became immediately interested in graphic design with that name associated to it, the name graphic design, and started sort of undertook a little independent study course in graphic design in high school where I volunteered to design any printed thing that anyone wanted done. Then I went to the the, the bigger library and found this book uh, also on gra- called Graphic Design, except it was by Armin Hoffman. Uh, now, some of the listeners here may know that Armin Hoffman, for years, ran the Kunstgewerbeschule in Basel, Switzerland, very different than Neo Fujita, mm-hmm. uh, working as a New York art director. And that book, you know, then I took that book out from the library. It was more graphic design. So I asked my mom to buy me this book, Graphic Design. And so she bought me a book. And the book she bought me was Graphic Design by Milton Glaser. Still another kind of graphic design. Uh, so before I even entered uh, college, I had these three books as my kind of uh, three lodestars in a way. And um, I ended up going to the University of Cincinnati, College of Design, Architecture, and Art. Now it's called the College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning. And they had an intensive course of study, a major in graphic design. And I had asked my high school guidance counselor, I want to study graphic design. I want to do it at a university because I thought, you know, it just would seem less specialized in an art school and exposure to more things. I was smart enough to do that. And uh, so I stumbled into um, the course of study in Cincinnati that was very much along the the Armin Hoffman, Basel, Swiss line. I sort of had the Neo Fujita and Milton Glaser beaten out of me. I had all my bad habits beaten out of me, actually doing these very simple exercises, you know, moving dots around in squares and hand-drawing type. And now I look back and I can't figure out how I like knew anything without the internet, without email, without, you know, it just was strange to make your way in the world, kind of half blind, really, you know, particularly if you're a visual person hungry for visual things. If I go see a painting, go downtown to the art museum, want to take out a book, you know, have someone figure out a way to get to the library and look at the card catalog in these wooden drawers, pieces of cardboard. It's all very strange, but uh, miraculously satisfying in a way and started me on a journey that has ended up with me sitting here with you guys. So nice. I'm curious about how from that moment in uh, high school to then graduating, that you then moved into art and design and graphic design in New York. What was that like for you, uh, being kind of seeing it in the books and then now being one in the books? Uh, well, it took me a long time to sort of, it, there was, oh, it, yeah, sure, it, it, sure. it took yeah. so long, I don't remember it actually being a stunning revelation to actually kind of encounter that moment. But I will say that, um, you know, I graduated um, from college way back in 1980. That was a moment in time where still, if you wanted to, if you were serious about doing graphic design or advertising or anything about communications and media, you pretty much had to go to someplace like New York, maybe Chicago, maybe LA, maybe San Francisco, possibly Seattle. Cleveland's not, Cleveland's 500 miles from New York. I had visited there on a high school field trip. I really liked it. And this was New York in the 70s when it was not easy to like. It was like crime ridden, filthy, and dangerous, but I still <laughs> liked it anyway. It seemed exciting to me. I, I had a, a one, you know, all, all these things are very lucky. The fact that that book by Fujita was in my high school library in Parma, Ohio. The fact that uh, 
at the Snow Road Regional Library in Parma was this Armin Hoffman book. So I can't even imagine why someone would order that book for that library. And then my dear mother trying to make me happy on um, Christmas, you know, goes out and buys the wrong book and I end up with that Milton Glaser book. So one last bit of luck, a bit of luck, I've had many. Um, one of my visits to, to New York that I made, I had a friend of a friend, a, a guy I'd interned with, one of his college classmates had gotten a job working for a designer named Massimo Vignelli. And again, I couldn't tell you how I even knew the name Massimo Vignelli. Couldn't look him up on the internet. There was like no blogs or anything like that. So I must have seen it in a design book somewhere, but he was a legendary New York figure who had designed, among other things, the signage for the New York subway system and the logo for Bloomingdale's and, and, and all kinds of other stuff everything everything important at that time yeah well things that really appealed massively to me and especially i remember emblematic was the uh uh, he had designed a um a very designy geometric map of the new york subway system which was introduced in the early 70s and abandoned by the end of the decade because it was abstract and geometric and a lot of people as it turns out don't like abstract geometric things they prefer geographically (laughs) accurate things so uh to to some people's great dismay including mine it was abandoned but i remember when i did my one of my trips to new york i picked up that at you know it was the the map they gave you for free in the subway and i had it pinned to my wall in ohio for years and it was sort of like this kind of holy relic of one day you know this will all be mine and um, believe it or not, I, um, I went to go visit this, this friend of a friend who had this job at Vignelli Associates, you know, and really just, I was just there as a gawker, you know, as a, um, a peeping Tom in a way. I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I had my portfolio with me because I sort of thought, you know, something might come of it. And it so happened that um, I got to meet Mr. Vignelli himself, and he liked my portfolio, and sort of in this impetuous, enthusiastic way that was his manner, kind of said, you know, when you graduate, come here and you can have a job. Now, it turns out that, you know, he had a lot of people working for him that would go back in and sort of uh, clarify his remarks. And it turned out that that wasn't a, you know, that wasn't a signable contract. That was his general intention that if everything worked out, if there was a position, if I was available, if, if, if maybe I could get a job there. Mm -hmm. So I was quite excited about that, but also a bit realistic too. But as it turned out, more luck. You know, one of their designers uh, moved on to another job that spring, and they held a position open for me for a month or two, and I started there. It was my first job out of school. I was the lowest of the low uh, design assistants there. And in 1980, you could really be a design assistance did was really low. It was like almost borderline janitorial, you know, mm-hmm. there no computers, no precise work. I mean, it was like mixing paste in pots and cutting things and taping things. You know, it was more yeah, like yeah. A, working in the, uh, you know, as a short order assistant mm-hmm. to a short order cook in a greasy yeah. spoon diner than it was anything glamorous. But I was so happy to have that job. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you mentioned when you were talking about having the skill of drawing. Yeah. You mentioned the difference between creativity and craft. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious if that, A, what you mean by that, <laughs> but also, yeah. B, how that comes into play kind of as you entered into your career. Yeah, I think those yeah, earlier yeah, I, 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 uh, um, Chad, thanks for asking that. It's an interesting question. Design is this elusive thing that can be a little bit difficult to define. I think it's uh, it's certainly kind of somewhere between craft and creativity. Mm-hmm. You have I know some people that are obsessed with craft and and then other people are better at the creative part of it and kind of can't execute all that well. But you have to be able to do both or at least figure out a way to manage both of those things. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're 
there's another dichotomy that I think is uh, the balance you strike between your own personal need for self-expression, which also could be defined as creativity. Mm-hmm. And if you're working as a designer in a commercial setting or in any setting where you have clients or other people that you're collaborating with or people commissioning work from you that's meant to uh, serve some goal that they have, you have to figure out some way to put your creativity in the service of whatever their goal is you know if you were just you know i I imagine that fine artists just go off in a room and their creativity serves no one but themselves i'm told by by the way by (laughs) by actual fine artists that that is not the case but that's my fantasy about what it's like to be an artist um as it turns out i don't really have that impulse to go off and create things all by myself i really do thrive on connecting with people and i think you know that that was something that was there in high school i think part of the thrill of being good at when someone said hey you're good at art can you do the the banner for the football homecoming game they would never ask me to be the starting quarterback they wouldn't even put me on the bench as the substitute to a substitute i was so <laughs> nerdy and, and clumsy I, you know i stood no chance of that but you got to sort of participate in that world just by having a banner up in the hallway and likewise i didn't have the nerve to go on stage and perform but to do the poster for the play you're kind of participating in that world too and so you know think about it it's still the same thing as a graphic designer you're not in the hermetic world of uh of art where you're in your own room trying to work through things just in your own head for your own satisfaction but instead you're constantly being asked to engage with other problems other contexts and most importantly other people Mm-hmm. Does that metaphor of playing a game and sitting on the sideline and being the the second string yeah, yeah. of the second string is that kind of what it felt like when you started at Vignelli? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I was like, put me in, put me in, coach. But mm-hmm. uh, and and in fact, I think you know what I learned, and it's funny to watch young designers working for me discover the same things. Is like you, you know, first day in your job, you just like trying. Mm-hmm. not to get fired or you know, <laughs> not to make anyone mad and someone asks you to do something and if they ask you to go from A to B you sort of say B, B, A, B, A, B, A, B okay I can do this I can do this you know mm-hmm. and like if they ask you to go to C you sort of have to write it all down and rehearse it and maybe burst into tears along the way that's how I was at least what happens is after, after I was there for a few months, you know, I started sort of being able to anticipate where things were going. Mm-hmm. Someone could say, go from A to B, and then I would make an educated guess and figure that the destination was C or D or E, F, G or wherever it was. Right? And you think, well, you know, I've got that down. Let me just push it one more step and see how far I can go. You know, before long, I'd be able to take on whole projects by myself, work with clients on my own sort of work under Massimo Vignelli's guidance uh, in a general sense, but also once something was up and running, it was sort of a load off his mind if I could just sort of like do it for him, right? Mm -hmm. And in a place like that, you don't really, you know, I wasn't able to get that position by being unique and creative because no one who was knocking on that door was hoping to have a 20-something kid from Ohio put his signature on the work. That was the last thing they wanted. They wanted a, you know, a legendary Italian-American designer named Massimo Vignelli to, uh, to be the designer who was authoring their project, right? Um, so a lot of what I did had to do with trying to figure out every day, every minute, what would Massimo do and then follow suit. But then I think, um, just I swear, I see it happening today with my designers. They are simultaneously trying to understand what I want, 
mm-hmm. but I, I, t- I like to think I encourage them to do this, but even without the encouragement, the best of them will also say, well, okay, boss, here's the thing you were asking for, but then I noticed you could also do it backwards and upside down, and it looks like this. I guess I could say, you're fired. Um, you know, I didn't authorize you to do it backwards and upside down. But instead, I'm like, huh. And sometimes I'm like, nice try, but that doesn't work. But hey, a lot of times I'm like, wait a second, I think you got something there. A lot of what it takes is going from being the second string to the second string. And it's not so much you get called into the big game and you throw a touchdown pass. I'm here, here I am with these sports metaphors. I'm so mm-hmm. inept. I would know from throwing a touchdown pass. You, it's not, that's not what you have to do. What you have to do is just be really engaged in the game. Be really, you know, be attentive to the skills you see on display. Work hard, practice yourself. And eventually you sort of find yourself like all of a sudden you're on stage and you're the one doing it, you know, and it doesn't happen overnight usually. And you can't make it happen entirely through this impatient force of will. You sort of have to just keep pressing and pressing and eventually you get there. And and you have to be conscious of what your own skill level is too. I mean, the best people, their taste is always a little bit better than their skill and they have to kind of keep trying to close that gap and chasing that difference. What I usually will tell students is that uh, curiosity is yeah. just as important as the create. That oh, absolutely. Function. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I think there aren't, I mean, from, for, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, there's just like, not, there's not enough graphic, graphic design in and of itself isn't sufficiently interesting. They're just kind of like finding new typeface and lining something up in a new way or not. It's just alone that that isn't quite enough to to keep you doing it. I mean, I've been doing this now for nearly four decades. Instead, what's interesting is someone comes to you with a new kind of problem and it requires a new kind of solution. And it sort of forces you out of your normal kind of modus operandi and you're forced to invent something new or respond in a new way. Or in my case, you know, one of my younger designers is, I'm working with them. And uh, I say one of my younger designers are the only kind of designers I have. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, a designer who's working with me will sort of like come up with an idea that cross-pollinates with something I'm talking about and something original emerges from that. And it all has to do with just being able to manage, as you say, that curiosity. Mm-hmm. I'm, I would like to go back a step or two, what you were saying about your interview with Massimo and just serendipitously having your portfolio. Yeah. These days... What would the 20-some-year-old Ohio student who happens to come to Pentagram or to a design studio, how do they get found mm. similarly? Um, yeah, I think that um, it seemed just as, it seemed hard to me for, to get a job back then. But there weren't armies of people from Ohio coming to that office looking for jobs. I was, I mean, like, you had to literally get there physically, mm-hmm. kind of carry a physical portfolio, somehow walk oh, physically yeah, through the that. tour, yeah. you know? And so it wasn't sending PDFs or sending a link to your beautiful website. None of that was possible, right? So it was it was physically harder. Yet, I don't remember thinking, those suckers, I've got it made. I'm the one who's going that <laughs> extra mile, uh, and I'm going to make this happen. So I think that really what the reason I got that job was, again, there was some luck involved, maybe mostly luck. But the part that wasn't luck was a combination of several things. One was that that wasn't just a name on my list. I knew what Vignelli Associates was. I knew who Massimo Vignelli was, right? And, and I mean, it's not so much that I kind of redid my whole portfolio to kind of play to what I imagine would be his 
taste. But I, I went there as opposed to 10 other places I might have gone. Because I sort of, I could look at, I, what, what, what interested me about graphic design was on display there. And so first of all, I get a lot, a lot of people will write me or send me emails or whatever. And I'll look at the portfolio and sometimes it's really good, but they would not be happy working for me. Mm-hmm. If, they, if the kind of work they want to do is in their portfolio, I'm not the person they should work for. I have partners that might be better for them, but it's not me. And, and so, and it's not like I get mad at them and think, you know, what's wrong with you, stupid? Why did you send me this stuff? I mean, the, everyone is kind of going through the same journey sure, in a way, yeah. so I'm not holding against them. But I think the connection happens when sort of uh, your enthusiasms align a little bit with those of your desired place of employment. So that's one thing. Being good at what you do is another thing. And I, I, I worked hard. I was good at what I did. So that helps as well. Nowadays, like what will catch my attention as much as anything else is if someone writes me a uh, cover letter for, for um, you know, that someone can write me. I, I mean, I've actually given people interviews just because I thought they, they just had a beautifully written note, not necessarily really long, not filled with big AP English words necessarily, but just something that was graceful where I really felt I got some insight into their personality from it. And so you really want to feel that there's a that there's a person there, a person that you'd like to spend time with. You'd like to feel that they're acknowledging the fact that they're fulfilling a need that I have in my office, that I'm not simply, you know, I think the hardest thing in the world to do is get yourself out of your own point of view and sort of think, okay, sending an email to a person who probably is getting five of these a day, yeah. who may or may not have a job, you know, how do I, wh- how do I frame it that way? Instead, you're just thinking, I got, you know, I got to send out 10 of these every hour or else nothing's going to happen. And you're just firing away and you're not really trying to really think about why am I doing this and what's in it for them. So yeah. I think that those, those are the things that work for me today. And I will say, however, that um, at Pentagram, I've got um, seven partners in the New York office alone and 20 plus partners around the world. I would say that every one of them will give you a slightly different answer to that question. So my point of view is as good as sure, yeah. it works for me. It may not work for anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, we've covered your past a little bit, but I also wanted to talk about the future and where you think the future of design is headed and a question of is design education keeping up uh, based off of what you're seeing? And then what do you think is needed for the future of design? That's about it. That's a big 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 question. question. Well done. You know, I don't think that every, I don't think every school has to educate every student to be ready to take on that challenge. And Mm -hmm. I don't think maybe no school needs to educate a single student to take on that challenge. It's just too big. You know, one of the things I've just observed over my career is that, you know, the the kinds of skills you need to succeed, the kinds of, say, if you want to call them craft skills, let's say, mm-hmm. which today I would describe as software program or, you know, that particular, you know, fluency in one particular specific kind of media application. Those are like the, that's like the cost of entry to participate, but those will, you know, those will inevitably change. Mm -hmm. You know, they've already changed over and over again over the course of my career. I think they're probably, again, I can't speak for anyone else, but I've never asked someone, like, tell me about your software experience. I just assume that it's kind of there if they they have, like, competent-looking work, if they have good-looking, if they have work that looks good and interesting in their portfolio, I assume that they, if they made it, they know how to make stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, what I sort of look for, well, this sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, but, you know, I'm someone who kind of really values curiosity, 
kind of a broad generalist sort of base of knowledge that's brought to bear on design problems, enthusiasm, you know, energy. And I think those things sort of like will never go out of style. And I think in a way there's even more pressure than ever to, to exhibit those traits because mm-hmm. no one in my on my team and very you know no designers that I see working in our office are expected to, to be nothing more than someone sitting at a computer doing some rote task no matter how well they do it no matter how well they current type or no matter how well they retouch images in Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever they're doing that sort of isn't what anyone is doing you know I think instead I look at my team and I look at the other designers who are working for my partners and I see people you know who are able to bring real kind of intelligence and curiosity to the work that they're doing you can give them a little something to do and boy you know every once in a while well it happens enough that it's like uh, that it's the joy of my life is that I'll be working on a project with a designer on my team and we'll sort of arrange to talk about it the morning after next or something and I'll sit down with them and they'll say I've got let me let me show you I've been working on something and they'll just show me something and I just can't believe that they've done it it's like they will have kind of worked out a whole original typeface just based on a couple of sketches that we've been doing two days before mm-hmm. or they took something and they animated it just to see what it would look like or they just you know they did some research and turned up some things uh, that I had no idea were out there and so I think the future of design and the future of design education has to somehow make room to prepare people to enter a world which is going to reward that sort of energy and curiosity. It's hard to do because I was, boy was I dumb, you know, when I was in high school. I'd never barely been out of Ohio. Read a lot of books and things, but I just sat cowering in the back of the Vignelli office listening to them talking in Italian. Half of the references they made, half the names they dropped, the places they mentioned, I had no idea what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I just would soak it all in and then and then somehow just got interested in it all on my own, you know, and took pleasure in what I learned, right? It's not like just furring your brow and getting all sweaty and cramming for a test. If that's what it feels like, you shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. Instead, they would be talking about a chance to work with people I later learned were famous architect, but just just seem like people to me. And then suddenly kind of getting to experience their work or listen to the conversations was just like enthralling to me. It was genuinely interesting and inspiring. And I think unless you're kind of finding places for that sort of inspiration in the work that you're surrounding yourself with, you are just going to be, your only other recourse is to go back and current things, you know, mm-hmm. and that's important, you know, mm-hmm. if you're doing a kind of project that requires yeah. good kerning, and not everyone cares about that these days, but mm-hmm. that's sort of, those kind of decisions can make or break a project as well, but I think the real engine, the fuel that actually gets you to the destination has to do with curiosity and energy. Yeah. It's such like the central point of your answer because I feel like the more I've talked to people about like that question of the future of design, the more I think about, you know, coming out of school in my own career was this idea of like, how do I stay relevant through it? And I even remember, so JP was my uh, design professor in undergrad. I remember at that time, everybody would get really frustrated because he wouldn't really teach us software. He was teaching us how to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we didn't get it at the time. But I think it's interesting that things you talk about that our design education needs to make more room for are these things that will carry you through your career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even the history of Pentagram, firm that I work in now, when it was founded in 72, when I was way back doing my first high school play poster, honestly, it was a multidisciplinary design firm. And the dis- there were three disciplines. It was graphic design, 
industrial design and architecture. Mm-hmm. And that those were basically pretty much described the whole world of commercial design consultancies. And today, you know, there's so many other ways to define design, you know, every experience design, obviously digital design, but sound mm-hmm. design, service design, there's so many different ways you can describe it. And the kinds of uh, challenges that, that all these different disciplines represent have very little to do with tools and, and techniques. It has to do with your ability to be genuinely curious about a problem really broadly defined and mm-hmm. have a sense of uh, curiosity about the people that the solution of that problem may affect. That's a lot harder to teach than a software program and it's actually harder to learn than a software program mm-hmm. but i think that those are the things that i learned along the way that's uh you know to the degree that i have any relevance at all 40 years later it's because of those factors rather than the ability i had back in the day to uh cut something really precisely with an exacto knife which i, I probably could do right now if i had to and no one cares well and those, <laughs> i mean and those still those skills still got you to where you were yeah, you know, it was it was the barrier to entry yep yeah. yeah. I would also say that, you know, looking back at your work and a bit of what you were just talking about right now, it seems that one of the important things about design for you is access. Mm -hmm. You know, that the subway map, it was accessible. It was free. It it was something that the public was uh, able to to gain access to. You enjoyed the posters because it was uh, available to the public. And I think that design especially now is about accessibility you know information has become so important and so integral to our community that accessing that information in ways that visually tell that story about whatever the data is saying yeah yeah i think you're right and i think that the um it goes to this idea that i think graphic design particularly is a very social act you know it really it doesn't usually have that much meaning if it's being done for private purposes if you're communicating with yourself or with a limited number of people although some graphic design is intended to do just that and not everything has to be mass 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 communication but i think if what the thing that really is interesting to me and people say you know what moments have really what kinds of projects have you done that you really were excited by or uh particularly proud of and I when when that question's asked when I picture things it's seldom the sketch in my sketchbook or the way it looked in the you know on the computer screen or the first presentation but it's the first time I saw a shopping bag being carried by someone who I didn't know who had just bought something at the store and mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was like the shopping bag I designed just being carried by someone who uh, who I'd never met who didn't know my name who probably wouldn't be wouldn't who may not even understand that another human being had to do anything at all to make that shopping bag look the way it looked you know <laughs> but still it was like really exciting and uh and I think that the idea that as graphic designers particularly the decisions we make and the skill that we can exhibit you know, the ideas that we have can actually uh, contribute to people's experience in the world, making the world a better place or changing minds somehow or just providing really small moments of joy. You know, that's really a, a great thing. And it's something that uh, that I don't think any other design profession delivers in quite the same way. So um, we're trying something a little bit new this season, uh, which is an, a session that we call the recommendation list. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a couple of little questions and see what you get out of that. And, and I was not prepared for this, so forgive me <laughs> yeah. if my recommendations no, are that's uh, okay. They're, they're easy flawed. ones. Flawed, yeah. okay. 
so what would you consider the most important tool for a designer right now? And tool can be however you want to describe it. It's a little bit of a cop-out, but I would say uh, uh, for most uh, designers I know, it's their eyes. And just by that I mean being alert, using your eyes to read, using your eyes to discover, using your eyes to see things. You, you know, eating, like one of my partners has a... Uh, did a book called Eating with Your Eyes, and it sort of is using your eyes as nourishment. Now, I know that there are partially sighted designers. I know that blind architects who can actually make a real contribution, so I don't mean to privilege one sense over another. And maybe more generally speaking, I just mean using your senses to kind of perceive the world yeah. and translating that into things that actually can bring meaning to that world. It's almost uh, going back to what you had said um, earlier, which is be curious. Yeah, you know, Use yeah, exactly. your eyes to be curious yeah, about yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any uh, suggestions on a piece of music that you've recently discovered? Well, I didn't recently discover this, but my wife asked me to recommend a recording of this song called The Goldberg Variations that people have heard me, like I, people, everyone knows that I'm like really into sure. Bach and The Goldberg Variations I'm like really obsessed by. And um, I went off on, the, I've been married for uh, 38 years and I went off on, rant about Bach and the Gober variations and I realized as I was doing it that it really is a very designy sort of piece of music in that he did it on commission he was being uh, Goldberg was the guy I think who hired him to do it and it was a guy who supposedly had insomnia and just wanted something kind of wanted a piano piece to play when he couldn't go to sleep so it's not he's not exactly a lullaby but it's just kind of it's not inherently like a dramatic piece of music it's just basically this one simple song and then Bach does uh, 32 variations what's interesting is that each of the variations retains the basic chord structure and the basic uh, overall melodic structure of the song but one is fast, one's slow, one's happy, one's sad, one's dramatic, one's sprightly. And it really reminds, I mean, so much of what you do as a designer is taking things that are understood and not thought about that much, and like the alphabet is something like that, mm -hmm. and then figuring out ways to do unique customizations of that common thing in a way that makes it distinctive, but still makes it recognizable. So that's your, there's a theme, and we do variations on that theme, I think, as graphic designers a lot. And so that so I recommend it. There's a, a famous Canadian piano player named Glenn Gould who recorded it twice, and the first recording he made actually made his reputation because it was considered like a, a technical exercise that didn't really have much uh, promise as a performance piece, and he just played the hell out of that song. Nice. It made his reputation like overnight, and then he re-recorded it much later in his life. And you can get you can download both of the recordings, the 55 recording and I think the 70 or you know 82 recording, much later, much older. And the difference between those two is actually really interesting, too. As I've gotten older, I sort of sympathize with the difference between when he was showing off as a young guy in 1955 and kind of confronting his own mortality much later. Yeah, it's like yeah. a very profound piece of music. I recommend it to everyone. Even, even if you don't like classical music, that's like it's a hell of a piece of piano playing. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm on sabbatical right now, and so I am thirsty for any good articles to read about design. Is there anything that you've read recently that maybe hasn't gotten a lot of play or that you feel is going to be an important part of the design community um, in the future or, or even now? Oh, that's interesting. Um, there's, a, there's actually a, an article that I think is about a year old now, but I read it and I found myself quoting it quite a bit. And it, it was funny because it didn't, 
I thought I thought I knew about the subject matter before, and it turned out that it just sort of crystallized it in a way that made it new to me. It was in the Atlantic, and I think the title, somewhat sensationalistic, is something like four-letter formula that will make anyone buy anything, and. So it's, it's like a hypey sort of clickbaity sort of yeah. title, something <laughs> like that. And basically, it's talking about the industrial designer, industrial and graphic designer Raymond Lowy, who in the mid-20th century, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he designed everything from, I think he designed the livery for um, Air Force One. Mm-hmm. He designed the, the old logo for the U.S. Post Office, designed the, fam- the, the Lucky Strike package, if anyone mm-hmm. smokes Lucky Strikes anymore. Um, you know, did all, you know, designed cars. I think he, yeah, I was going to say the Avante is what I know. Yeah, the Avante. Yeah. He designed the 20th Century Limited train. All, you know, it's amazing mid-century designer whose career spanned uh, uh, decades and decades. And he had this very specific philosophy that was called M-A-Y-A. I'm not even sure whether it's pronounced Maya or whether it's just you say the letters, but it uh, stands for most advanced yet acceptable. And it's based on this premise that all of us are interested in two things. The balance is different for all of us. We're interested in um, things in kind of the comfort of familiarity, things that are predictable just the reliability in a way. Mm -hmm. But we're also interested in novelty, excitement, and surprise. And if you only have the first thing, you live a boring life and it's depressing. If you only have the second thing, it's like too jarring and you can never get any rest, right? And so his design work always kind of mediated between those two ends. And I think that's true for all design work in a way. It goes back to what I was saying before. If you think about Glenn Gould, the theme is the expected thing and the novelty are the variations, right? It sort of applies to sports, you know? It's like the, the rules of the game are the same for every single baseball game yet every single baseball game is slightly different because of just the happenstance that happens and the most memorable ones were ones where amazingly surprising things happen right if there were no rules at all it would it would just be a bunch of meaningless activity that wouldn't seem like anything so it's a combination of what's predictable and expected and what's surprising and this was written for a general audience who um who had never you know who probably most of whom hadn't heard of Raymond Lowy and most of to, to most of whom they would have found this uh, unfamiliar and as I read it I thought oh I know this already but they put it in a way that was kind of just really very precise and interesting and and i found that it's like i i, I apologize to anyone who's ever heard another podcast by me because i swear <laughs> to god you know i'm constantly falling back on the goldberg variations and now this raymond lowey formula in the last year or so so i'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a rest perhaps after this one with yeah. that good question but i recommend that article i think it's called the four-letter formula that will sell anything to anyone or something like that it was in the atlantic cool thank you I have just one last Go one, ahead. which is to uh, conclude it the same way we started. Coke or Pepsi? Oh, I like Coca-Cola. I always have. Yeah. Period. <laughs> Period. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Coke. You know, it's a real thing. Period. In Helvetica. Period. Exactly right. I sort of forgot about that. Yeah. It's just a typeface to me. It's, I forget oh, it's yeah, associated yeah. with the soft drink. Well, Michael Bay Ruth, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we appreciate your time. It's a pleasure and honor, guys. Thank you for having thank you. me. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at T-I-D-S Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. 
Bye for now.